Welcome to another podcast from the School of Economics and Finance at Queen Mary University. My name is Ashley Arnold, and as part of our new series focusing on mental health and mental health economics, I chat with academic experts in the field. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Mark Freeston, Reader of Mental Health and Director of Education at the Walton Institute of Population Health at Queen Mary, and more recently, Co-Program Director of the MSc in Mental Health Economics. Welcome, Mark. Lovely to see you again. How are you? I'm very well, Ashley. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Absolutely delighted. And as you know, we've been running a series on mental health and, and the program Mental Health uh, Economics. And so I'd like to sort of explore that a, a little more because you are um, uh, the co-program director. But if I may, and for our listeners who might not know you, could you tell us a, a bit more about who you are at Queen Mary and what you do? I know you've got a number of hats we can talk about. I do, and I'll try and uh, shuffle them all around in the course of our talks. Well, I'm a reader in mental health and director of education for the Wolfson Institute of Population Health, which is a new department at Queen Mary in the Medicine and Dentistry Faculty. Uh, and it's, it's concerned with the ideas of communicating public and global health and mental health messages um, to the to best effect at the population level, I think. So how can we try and prevent the spread of disease before it gets ingrained in the population? How can we think innovatively about intervening to help people's quality of life improve? And how can we use new techniques like data science uh, to try and uh, get, a, get ahead of the curve on some of the upcoming questions uh, facing uh, serv health service delivery across the country? So from primary care all the way up to sort of acute hospital care. And that's my two big jobs. I also do a little bit of uh, work in psychology as well. I, I um, am a consultant to various organisations that we might talk about a little bit later. And the bulk of my research is focused on chronic conditions in mental health. So things like personality disorder, which has long been thought of as something that you can't treat. And I think that's changing, but um, maybe it's best thought of as a condition that affects people throughout their lives. And is more that something that shouldn't be thought of as a condition that you treat or you recover from, but rather something you learn to manage and live with uh, and sort of find where your strengths and weaknesses lie as a person to, to sort of better achieve a quality of life that, that is more you'd expect uh, regardless of whatever diagnosis people may want to give you no on, on the back of that I'm, I'm because i think you know the program has a lot of people uh, in, involved with it so i mean for those listening and interested in the program in particular i mean how did you get to where you are i mean and why do you do what you do i mean a lot more questions follow that which is you know what led you into the field of mental health but in particular i guess forensic mental health which is, is quite an exciting area i guess yeah, so it's a really good question. I, forensic mental health, it sounds exciting. It's maybe not quite as exciting as it sounds. It basically means mental health service delivery where there is a legal aspect to it. So this can mean where people are detained because they've been uh, accused of a crime. It can mean people who are victims of a crime and, and maybe need to find a route to recovery. It can mean people who've been uh, found by a court to be not morally culpable of the crime because of the nature of their mental illness as well. And I was, um, I was a sociologist a long time ago now, 22 years, and I was working on anti-globalisation process, which is absolutely nothing to do with mental health whatsoever, although in hindsight, maybe I'd change the way I think about that a little bit. But I think that I was presented with an opportunity because I lived in Nottingham at the time, and they just opened a new uh, specialised unit in Rampton Hospital, which is in North Nottinghamshire, and Rampton is one of the three maximum security psychiatric hospitals in the UK, along with Broadmoor in Surrey and uh, Ashworth in, in Cheshire. And they commissioned a new service for people who were known as uh, legally under the, the old mental health act as psychopaths. And the idea of this unit, which was called the Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder Unit, was to bring lots of psychopaths together and try and 
get them to sort of go through a meaningful treatment process that nobody in, in the whole world, I mean, this was very innovative at the time, 2004, I think nobody else tried this in the same, to the same level intensity and sort of financial commitment because the setup cost of this project across, I think it was two hospitals and two prisons was about 67 million pounds, which comes into how this is relevant to the course slightly later on. But I, I got a grant from um, what is now the NIHR, the National Institute for Health Research in the UK to go into one of these units and sort of try and work out a little bit how it functioned. How do you safely contain psychopaths? How do you treat them? How do you make sure that staff are safe? How do you make sure that the, you know, the, the, the community at large is, is safe when these people are discharged? And uh, without wishing to go into too much detail, essentially my report concluded that it wasn't very safe because there were all sorts of things happening to these units. I think basically nobody had thought too carefully about why people should come to work in a unit that's exclusively for treating psychopaths, what their motivations might be and how you help them maintain their boundaries in the face of people who can be really quite manipulative, not because they're evil, I don't think, but because that's their way of relating to the world. They feel that in order to survive, they have to get one over on everyone else. That's kind of one of the definitions of psychopathy. So people who came to work there very quickly found it very, very, uh, fatiguing very emotionally draining and they burned out very quickly and then there wasn't necessarily this groundswell of people rushing to replace them because once in a very closed institution once something gets a bad reputation it's very very hard to persuade people to come over and work there so the salaries went up but the quality the number of people and the quality of what they're living went down and down and down and eventually in 2012 the government decided they'd had enough and declared the whole thing a, a, a sort of qualified failure I think uh, is the best way of putting it but what really intrigued me about that was the, the sort of the, the finance of the whole operation. There were a lot of really interesting studies done using quite at the time, sort of the, you know, the, the late the noughties, very sophisticated modeling techniques like rash analysis and number needed to treat analysis. And they figured out some really interesting statistics because it, an individual bed in a high secure hospital cost the taxpayer in uh, 2007, something in the region of 350, 400,000. And for these dangerous per year, and and for these dangerous and severe personality disorder units, because of the the costs associated with a you know a high profile professional like a psychiatrist, and the problems recruiting, the cost was probably getting on for five half a million pounds per year. Now, if you're going to do that, if you're going to put that much taxpayers' money into something, I, I don't think that you can accept that that is just to detain somebody because the cost of a prison bed at the same time, even in a maximum security prison was about a, a fourth to a fifth of that, something in the region of 50, 60,000 pounds a year. So I think in order for this to have been an acceptable cost to the taxpayer, how do you understand what you know an effective impact of this intervention is? And when we looked at some of the data that suggested you needed to treat 30 people in one of these services to prevent one violent incident, so you're talking in the region of 15 million pounds just to prevent one violent crime, then it, the, the sort of the mathematics of it doesn't really make sense because whichever way you put it, you could say these people should have gone to prison. That's one way of looking at it. And then it would have cost the taxpayer a fifth of the money and probably prevented about the same number of crimes. Or you could think of it from the perspective of, you know, do we want to make people's lives better? And, and I think by the definition of, of your life being better, you don't want to be banged up indefinitely in a maximum security psychiatric hospital. So then you look at progression. And unfortunately, on that front as well, that was a failure too, because people were supposed to be staying in these units for two, three years. And a lot of them, by the end of it, had come into the DSP units and sat there at a cost of, you know, four million pounds each over sort of seven, eight years and not progressed. 
And progression is important also for the taxpayer because a, a medium secure unit bed costs half less than half the price of a, a maximum security hospital bed. And not only that, but it also provides a sense of progression. But a medium secure clinician is not going to accept somebody who they have any doubts at all about because in a medium secure unit you can go on leave you can go back into the community so i became really really interested in the ideas of what, what are the what's the decision making process behind setting up a service like this who benefits how do we judge success and more importantly how do we understand and justify very large amounts of healthcare spending on what is a very very tiny population just as a sort of ending anecdote i have to be careful to anonymize this one but uh, uh, around about 20 2009 2010 so i'm not going to give away which administration it was one of my good friends and former colleagues who was director of secure services for nhs england at the time uh, was called to the prime minister's office to explain this enormous spend on maximum security uh, uh, services for personality disorder and he said well the situation is this <laughs> if we try and move them on from the services they're currently in nobody will take them they're not all on prison orders so we'll have to release around 35 dangerous psychopaths directly into the community at which point the prime minister apparently said well that's fine then you can have another five years funding off you go <laughs> never heard anything more about it so it's it's it's, it's the pop popular perception of some of these disorders that drives the justification for very very high cost spending and I, I think with this degree we want to start getting people comfortable enough with public policy and the economics of mental health care to question those kind of uh, accepted truths i think you're clearly as with francesca who who did one of our first podcasts on, on mental health you're both incredibly excited about this program launching in September. So, I mean, who would you ideally like to see on the program? Well, I think what one of the one of the problems with the let's just stick with the dangerous and severe personality disorder program. There is a successor program to that, but that's also generated some controversy recently as well because it's so hard to determine what the priorities for any of these services are. Is it about making people better? Is it about making the population safe? Or is it about keeping people out of society for as long as you, you conceivably can do? And those are not necessarily well-aligned objectives. And what I think would have been so helpful for all of us, I mean, it's like the, the Francis Ford Coppola quote, you know, there were too many of us, we had access to too many resources, we had too much time, too many drugs, always said it in psychiatric care and little by little we all went insane you know if you don't have a clearly articulated idea of where the boundaries and the limits are and what you're trying to achieve you can't deliver on a, a sort of amorphous goal you can't deliver something where it's not clear who your duty of care is to what you're trying to achieve so i think with this program i'm particularly interested in bringing people who are involved in service delivery and mental health to try and give them a little bit more literacy around what the drivers are of say if a new service is set up at a cost of five million pounds a year where that money is likely to come from what the commissioning pathway is what an understanding of what the deliverables deliverables are for a mental health service and how they'll be accounted for in levels of government and what the economic theory is that underpins the expenditure of those kind of funds on a project, um, all of which will address questions of your outcome, they'll address questions of quality of life, they'll address questions of public safety. Uh, and I think what, what is often missing, those, those are all kind of givens, I think, but what's missing is the economic literacy to be able to say something like, you know, a quality of life year for somebody who has a personality disorder is worth this much to them. If we prevent somebody from going out and harming themselves or harming somebody else, how much money have we saved from the public purse? Because without that, lit I think with, for in our situation, without that literacy, because I was a manager in the, in the prison service units as well, without that literacy, you can't argue against demands to drop staff or change your rehabilitation pathways. And I really want to um, 
uh, encourage people who work in clinical roles but also leadership roles in the nhs and private providers to engage with this program to try and get more of a sense of that i also there's another side to this which i you know maybe i'm not qualified to talk about but one of the great things about the dspd program was when we started to do research we had a couple of well-known health economists sarah byford and barbara barrett helping us with the the economic aspects of the analysis and i i would love to have more health theoretical health economists who are trained in the research techniques and the data analysis interested in mental health because it, it's still a very very limited pool you've got a choice of about five or six people nationwide and i i don't understand why that is when i find it so fascinating so people who have a background in economics should equally find this course really stimulating it's a different approach it's a different sort of service style to other health kinds of health economics as well and it has all this opportunity i think for new thinking and new theories about about whether it's justified, for example, to detain people against their will, if it makes an, a saving to the, the, the public purse, for example. So health, health service clinicians, leaders, and also ec economics who have some kind of interest in mental health too, I'm hoping will find this course stimulating and enjoyable. And they also get to listen to you, which I think is fascinating what you talk about. It would be remiss of me if I didn't talk about some of the quite exciting things. I, I think they're exciting. You've consulted on forensic mental health issues for NHS England and London Violence Reduction Programme, but also films and television. And you've been involved with the American drama series uh, Killing Eve on um, BBC America, but also the Channel 4 prison drama Screw. What's your role in this? You know, what is it that you you do? You consult on? I think it's fascinating. That, okay, that's a really good question. It sort of brings in my my history as well because so i i've never actually consulted to the the government on forensic mental health what i consult for is what's called tier four services so tier four service it, it's a very old dry technical term for basically people who are on their last shout but still live in the community so people who we think you know they, they're on the verge of either taking their own lives or very seriously harming themselves or, or seriously harming someone else so a tier four is a residential service so people come stay there for a long time and specifically, my consultation is around trying to find where you position a residential service for somebody with a diagnosis of personality disorder, which will prevent them from having contact with the criminal justice system, but also keep them safe, boundaried, and hopefully provide them something with, which will enrich their lives and improve their quality of life. It's a fiendishly difficult thing to do. And there was a, a sort of a wave of closures in the UK between 2002 and 2007, almost as the Dangerous and Severe Personality Disorder Service came online, which meant that a lot of people with very complex lives, very complex emotional needs, were essentially made homeless um, by a, a series of totally bureaucratic decisions around how healthcare was commissioned. So not through any malice or through any particular fault of any particular individual, just an absence of thought for people with very complex emotional needs meant that their services were cut and cut and cut and then eventually decommissioned. So my interest in how to provide a service for people who otherwise slip through the cracks, there was a, there was a joke made at probably you know totally inappropriately by one of the clinicians who said if you have a personality disorder and you want proper care go out into the street and punch a granny because then you'll get sent to a medium secure unit and you'll get the kind of care that you need um, almost as if you know a criminal record was worth doing it uh, worth, worth being violent for just to create the you know the perception that you needed help and I think that's exactly what the tiers four services were supposed to be for and we still haven't got a, a firm commitment from the government about that but that's that's by the by, I guess. But I think what um, what I've taken from that is that people are always interested in gaining more understanding about these more 
chronic but very niche psychiatric conditions like personality disorder and of course when I was a young postdoc I was so sort of immersed in it I just found it the most fascinating thing in the world because the personality disorder it's a very controversial diagnosis I should say there's a lot of movement away from using it at all uh, in favor of something like complex post-traumatic stress disorder or complex emotional needs all of which sort of say the same thing but I think what we currently have is a lot of research and thinking around where personality disorder comes from and what the likely treatment pathways might be so I'm sort of sticking with that for absence of a better a better phrase to use for the moment but I'm still hedging my bets but I think there was it was actually a case that wasn't about uh, psychopaths, it was about um, a, a, a partner, a pair of partners, a boyfriend and girlfriend who'd murdered girlfriend's parents and buried their bodies under the, uh, the, uh, the patio outside the back in order to make use of their retirement funds for some sort of, you know, ill-advised shopping spree. And this sort of motley pair went on a, a, a spending spree and then were, were caught by the police on the queue for at Stansted Airport on their way to Lanzarote because they had bags full of cash and it just didn't something just didn't look right. And when the police went sort of uh, investigating on this matter, they found the bodies of the parents and they discovered this very odd sort of um, almost uh, schizotypal existence where these people had very strange ideas about their abilities and um, uh, you know how, how they were going to make it morally justifiable to murder an elderly couple and steal their uh, steal their money. And and a couple of producers at the BBC picked up on this and said this would be a great idea for a tv program um and i just so happened to know somebody who knew somebody at the bbc and they were looking for a consultant to talk to them about personality disorder so as is i should say the case in 90 percent of these i came and met with some people we had a fascinating conversation and nothing happened <laughs> because the lead actor that was supposed to play one of the the sort of odd couple was booked up for years in advance so it's sort of on a back burner so i don't think they'll come for it but from that one of the writers on that hypothesized program or a program we thought of in a fit of uh, overweening bravado turned out to be Vicky Jones, who is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's co-writer on Killing Eve and Fleabag. And she met up with me again to talk about this project. And they said it's going to be about a, a psychopathic female assassin. And I, this is now a cliche for me, but I was just like, oh, come on for real the, the, the psychopathic women are very rare and they're never assassins. Like assassins, I think, <laughs> Hollywood has this perception of assassins as glamorous, and they're not. That one of the reasons that I sort of stuck with Guy Ritchie throughout his mid-period is that the assassins in Guy Ritchie films are just dirty scumballs. You know, they're horrible men with terrible histories and even more loaded sexism and sort of racism than anybody else in society. And that's my experience of working with assassins in you know prisons and, and hospitals. They're just horrible people. So I couldn't. Like, and I was like, okay, all right, this is not going to happen. They were like, oh, and she's going to be really glamorous and wear all these glamorous clothes and I live this sort of glamorous. I was like, this isn't, this is just, just not reality. So I said, all right, I'll come to a meeting. And, and, and this was going to be what was going to be Killing Eve. But at the time, of course, it was all a bit hazy about what it would be called. And it's based on um, a series of novellas by uh, a Guardian writer called Luke Jennings, which is called Codename Villanelle. So there are lots of different names shifting around in the sort of the, the ether for it and nobody wanted to buy it that was the biggest problem they couldn't sell it to anyone it ended up bbc america not terribly well known in the uk were the only people who would fund it and i think the 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 previous highest audience for bbc america had been a hansard debate in part uk parliament and this is in the states and uh, i think nine hundred ninety-nine thousand people in the states have watched this debate i can't remember what it was about probably about some treaty with the usa or something so when killing eve came and started getting figures of the sort of millions there was uh, in uh, you know i was like oh god this is actually going to be okay but my role was really to sort of think how do you take this great idea 
of a sort of unicorn character, Villanelle, the psychopathic, glamorous assassin, and ground it as far as you can in, in reality. Um, and that meant using my sort of experience of working directly clinically with people with, uh, you know, psychopathic disorders and personality disorders, but also trying to think, you know, what's the likely trajectory of somebody who is an assassin? Who will they work with? What will their personal dynamics with other people be? And I think that was what was at the core of um, that, that TV show is trying to establish an interpersonal dynamic that's not necessarily more complex than any dynamic between two lead characters but has this dimension that one of the characters is psychopathic and one of the more interesting ideas that you can do with that is from working with actual services for people with severe personality disorder you you notice a really strange phenomenon called malignant memory mirroring it was a, a american psychoanalyst called theodore zinkin called it malignant mirroring which is where people who work with psychopaths who work with people with very severe personality disorders start mirroring not the good parts but the bad parts of the behavior the bad parts of the psychopath if you like so with the i'm not going to give too many spoilers here but in the first series of killing eve you see how very quickly through a lot of contact with villanelle eve the the, the, the mi5 investigator tasked with her starts to become noticeably more paranoid and noticeably more violent and aggressive in her dealings with other people so you can you can see the, the sort of the more psychopathic aspects of the lead character bleeding into the people around them and how do they morally come to terms with themselves when they realize that they've actually been affected in quite a negative way by this obsession of theirs and it just seemed like such a great premise so that's why i stuck with it and why i still think you know all the way to the end of the series now the end of series four somebody just spoiled it all for me thanks for that um but but it's been a, a really sort of thrilling pro project to be engaged in and I, I think that core dynamic just understanding how you have two characters that endlessly sort of play cat and mouse with all you know erotic aspects and aggressive aspects and uh, aspects that are just plain mad but having keeping all those in the mix and trying to keep uh, the plot rolling at the same time a really really interesting work thoroughly enjoyed it and i think that this also should be a cautionary tale that it i'd love to say it was what i know and how brilliant i am at understanding psychopathy and these things but often the start comes from who you know and i get quite a lot of requests now and i try to sort of hive them out a little bit to my colleagues to say, look, this this program or this newspaper needs someone to consult on this. Can we, you know, I, I've got other things to do. I've got marking to do. I've got sons to raise. Would you mind talking to them instead? Because I think once you have somebody who has that visibility, you've got this great opportunity to try and build a culture around you, of uh, people who can consult on maybe some of the more exciting parts of uh, our, our, our society and culture. I'm always fascinated listening uh, to you when you, with these lovely stories. I think it's a podcast in itself. Maybe we'll, we'll revisit that. And I'm feeling sad that I, I'm going to ask a final question before we sort of um, end this particular episode. Um, I know you're always working on your your research. Um, is there anything in particular we can expect next? Anything we can sort of whet the appetite of our listeners or, or, or anywhere they can go and have a look at some of your work? Um, yes, yeah, so my, my webpage at uh, the Wolfson Institute in Queen Mary has a list of my currently published papers. I Something that confuses me a bit is I, I always get uh, mentioned in relation to psychopathy, but psychopathy has been a very small part of my research over the years. Actually, my real interest is in how to prevent violence. Um, and, and I guess the two strands of that that currently most come into the fore is, first of all, um, trying to prevent people being violent to themselves. So how can we understand and predict um, self-harm? particularly in people who are in prison or in uh, mental health units um, and, and as a sort of corollary of that I've become really interested in uh, victimization and people who become a victim and how 
there are sort of various fa risk factors, there are risk factors of becoming a victim. Everyone thinks that, well, I guess the, the popular perception is that people with a mental disorder are more likely to be violent. And, and to a certain extent, that's true, but you're actually far less likely to be a, a victimizer if you have a mental disorder than you are to be a victim. I think you're something like uh, 14 times more likely to be a victim than somebody without a diagnosed mental disorder. Um, and I'm really interested in that sort of discrepancy, both the sort of public perception of it and how we can start to uh, maybe make more effective public health interventions to help people understand that people who are, have mental disorder are far more vulnerable than they are difficult, aggressive, dangerous. And, and another thing that's been really useful is that the, being allied to things like the Alan Turing Institute have great data science techniques. So we can start to look at uh, record, healthcare records of people who have been treated by the, the mental health system and try and work out what the risk factors are for them becoming victims. There's a huge piece of work that nobody's ever done, which a lot of other countries have, which is the ability to link um, healthcare records with criminal justice records. That's still a on my to-do list. Somebody once told me if I could do it, I'd get a knighthood. So that gives you some idea of the scale of task. And we have very, very good privacy laws in the UK, but I'm not sure that given that a lot of other European Scandinavian countries allow you to do this linkage, whether with the right controls and the right sort of ethical scrutiny, it wouldn't be such a bad idea to do because it would certainly give us some idea about how we can better prevent, uh, not, 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 um, you know, punish more effectively or detain people, but help to prevent violent crime from happening. Um, and I think that's probably the, the, the core focus of my research at the moment, is how do we prevent violence? Uh, and I think it's worth telling our listeners that uh, we did have a launch event all about this time last year. And I think um, I well, I'll put in a link to that as well um, so that people can have a look at that. That was a wonderful panel event with with guest speakers as well. And again, Mark um, talked more about um, mental health uh, economics there too so mark the final thing for me to say is uh, again a real pleasure i thoroughly enjoyed listening to to you tonight and um, so thank you for being with us thank you so much ashley it's been an absolute pleasure as well